This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at the Vancouver School Board wanting to relocate the ideal mini school. We speak to parents and alumni on why the unique institution shouldn't be moved. Plus, what's in a name? Former Vancouver Mayor Sam Sullivan joins us to discuss whether Vancouver should rename schools. Is it the right thing to do or just cancel culture run amok? And Ottawa and Victoria promise to plant 2 billion trees. Is it effective in offsetting carbon emissions or just a convenient corporate gimmick? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now, Vancouver students involved in a very unique school program may soon be forced to relocate. Now, for the past five decades, uh, the ideal mini school has taught students who have higher learning needs or neurodiverse or experience social anxiety. Now, it has not a lot of students, 125 students, but uh, the ideal mini school is the only mini school in the Vancouver School Board's the whole district that's housed uh, in its own building. Now, recently, the school boards of the program will need to move uh, this fall to Sir Winston and Churchill Secondary School and that it needs the uh, current building where Ideal is located to make room for uh, students from Laurier Elementary School. Now keep in mind Churchill High School has more than 2,000 students enrolled in it. That's of course a significant difference from the 125 or so at the Ideal Mini School. Now the school board does say that um, they don't need to take the matter to the Vancouver School Board itself for approval because it is an operational matter. So lots to talk about here. Uh, lots from parents and students in regards to their views on this particular school and how important it is. Joining me now is Jen Yugama. She's the Ideal Mini School PAC Chair. Jen, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for uh, helping us bring attention to this matter. So let's talk a little bit about this. Why is the present setting so important for students uh, and parents in regards to their educational needs? Well, um, as you sort of said at the beginning there, Jazz, um, Ideal Mini School is a unique program in the Vancouver School Board. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the the, chil- the children that attend the school, mm-hmm. as you said, some have um, uh, social anxiety, some are neurodiverse, but there's also students who attend the school who are extremely strong leaders, and they come for the enriched academic program, and they come for the community focus and the leadership focus. And the key to the decades-long success of this school is the small scale of the school and how these students interact with each other. So there's the leaders and the super strong academic students, and then there's the kids that are not quite ready to enter into a 2,000-person school. And at Ideal, Everyone is included. Everyone is accepted. The community is so extremely tight-knit. The leaders and kids that need a little bit of extra assistance, they are in class together. They are working together. They are working on teams together. I mean, we've all been through high school. We know, um, or I went to a big high school, and the cliques that form and how, you know, there's the social pressure and all that kind of stuff – that doesn't happen at Ideal, and that it, it's allowed 
not to happen because of this building that keeps the kids together, that keeps them in this tight knit, safe, inclusive, accepted community. Now, Without I've, the building, it's hard to imagine this uh, program being able to succeed. Now, the program, according to the school district, correct me if I'm wrong here, would stay just that you're, it's going to be housed in a much bigger, obviously, school with a lot more students. Could you not be able to capture the same experience beyond just the size, but the core um, educational philosophy, uh, the core environment, and you think you just could not move that from this school to that much bigger school? Well, Jazz, um, when I'm not fighting for my children's education, Uh I work as an architect, and I can attest to how important buildings and the built environment are to the success of whomever is occupying the building. It's my entire profession is focused on this. And for the core values of the ideal program, a small environment is essential. Having said that, if the school board had a plan that would accommodate ideal in a small environment, we would be open to listening to that. But they have zero plans right now. What have they told you so far uh, in regards to they just came to you and said we're moving and, and that's about the extent of the conversation so far? Exactly. They've told us nothing. There's no plan. There's been no consultation. We had an emergency PAC meeting last night that was attended both in person and online by more than 200 people. Uh, One school board trustee, Susie Ma, attended. Michael Lee, the MLA for the Vancouver Langara area, attended, but not a single Vancouver school board administration staff the people that were responsible for this decision, they did not attend. No Churchill administration attended. Um, we've been told that they will meet with us on this coming Thursday. They've given us one hour to meet with them. Um, but they did uh, speak to the media this morning, but they haven't spoken to us. So if this is not something that needs to be discussed at the school board level, the elected official level, this is an operational decision by 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 um, um, bureaucrats, public servants. Uh, is this a done deal, or do you think you still have a voice that you can convince them to change their mind? We absolutely disagree that this is an operational issue. We feel that this is a label that the VSB staff has put on this issue mm-hmm. so that they don't have to go to the board and, and that uh, they can just make this decision without consulting the board, without putting it in front of the elected trustees that are supposed to oversee these fundamental policy decisions. We think this is a fundamental policy decision. This is not an operational issue. They're also telling us it's not a budget issue. We were on the agenda to speak at tomorrow night's Vancouver School Board budget meeting, and we were kicked off that speaker's list because we were told it's not a budget issue. When in fact, they've been talking about this, doing consolidating the um, small programs into bigger schools at budget meetings. This is a budget issue, and it doesn't just affect us. This is a budget issue. This is a fundamental policy issue, and it's going to affect every annex, 
every choice program, every mini school, every small school in the Vancouver School Board. It's going to potentially affect thousands of kids. This is not an operational issue. This is a fundamental policy decision, and this needs to be uh, discussed, consulted, planned, and it needs to go in front of the Vancouver School Board. Trustees are elected officials that are supposed to be overseeing these types of decisions. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any parent wants to hear, uh, you know, if one student is impacted, no parent wants to hear that it's an operational issue. It's it's much deeper Absolutely. than that. Uh, and so Absolutely. I just want to clarify this. ABC trustees, uh, which uh, generally are the majority now in Vancouver, they haven't reached out. You haven't talked to anybody f- uh, from the ABC School Trustee Coalition? We have not. We have contacted every single trustee multiple times as a pack. Mm-hmm. We've also had stakeholders, parents, students, alumni, they've all contacted the trustees. The only trustee who has replied to any of us directly was Susie Ma. I think Jennifer Reddy has communicated with some of the stakeholders. Um, I've received one email from Alfred Chien, who is the trustee who is responsible for the Churchill uh, campus, mm-hmm. um, and unfortunately, it was not an informative email. It was very similar wording, almost word for word, uh, from the letter that we received from Pedro de Silva, the associate superintendent, saying it's an operational issue. It doesn't need to be voted on. Um, it, it also sets up this letter and the email from Alfred Chien. Um, sets up this real oppositional situation where they're pitting parents versus parents, like the ideal parents versus the Laurier parents, and and child versus child. It's it's a really unfortunate situation that they're setting up, and it's not fair to anyone. We hesitate to participate in a parent versus parents, child versus child situation, but the VSB has set it up that way. Jen, thank you for your time. Uh, We look forward to chatting with you very soon on this issue because it is not going to be going away. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jess. If you're just joining us, we were speaking to Jen Ugama, who was the Ideal Mini School PAC chair. Uh, and if you haven't heard the story, uh, uh, Ideal Mini School has only about 125 students, and those students um, uh, have some have higher learning needs. Uh, they experience social anxiety or are neurodiverse. Uh, the Vancouver School Board says they want to move the school itself into Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School, which, of course, uh, has over 2,000 students, and parents and students at Ideal Mini Schools do not agree with that um, uh, policy announcement by the Vancouver School Board. The Ideal Mini School has been around for five decades, so it's not something that's new uh, at all. Uh, we're very fortunate to have an alumnus of the Ideal Mini School working with us right here at CKNW. Sarah Hyde is our executive producer here at CKNW, but she, as I said, is an alumni of Ideal Mini School as well. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to chat about my high school experience. <laughs> I loved my high school and I don't know how many people can say that. I loved my I high know. school. It's always what it's always interesting when you talk about uh, high school life. Some people just don't want to go back there. Others think it was the best time of their life as well. But I'm very curious about ideal um, school here. Um, your experience at that school, like what was a, a day like? Like what made it so unique compared to 
a generic, I'm saying generic, but a general high school? What made it so unique for you? It's very community focused. So the classes are very small. You know everyone in your class. We called our teachers by their first names. We kind of all hung out together. When I was there, we got to like paint our lockers. So we had like, I had like a castle tableau with my best friend that we painted together on our lockers. Mm -hmm. We even had a school dog actually when I was there. There hasn't been a school dog in a long time. But uh, yeah, back in the late 90s, we had a very elderly golden retriever called Charlie. Wow. So what did Ideal provide to you as a student uh, learning at a young age that you think you would not have received from, let's say, Churchill or attending a a high school that uh, may not cater some of those needs? I think it took off a lot of the social pressures that people feel in larger high schools. So, you know, having to dress a certain way, hang out with a certain group of people. We all hung out together. We dressed so many ways. Like when I was in high school there, there were probably like 75 different hair colors that people had. Like people were really in to self-expression and didn't have those same, just the same concerns that at a bigger high school you do. And I, I have a lot of experience at Churchill. I did a lot of theater up there. I was in their choir because you could have some opportunities up at the larger school. And actually my dad taught at Churchill for 35 years. So I'm very pro Churchill. It's just that it's very different than ideal. And it is absolutely going to compromise the the alternative culture that ideal really works and fosters. So did you notice a difference when you were at ideal and then you went up to take theater at, at Churchill? Like, was there a noticeable difference? as a student and in regards to a comfort level? I mean, theater kids are theater kids. I feel like kind of (laughs) ideal is a school full of theater kids. Uh But I did really notice a difference. And I know for a lot of the young people there, we would go up and use their gymnasium. Mm -hmm. And when we'd go up and use their gymnasium, it always felt like the main school kids were looking at us. People felt judgment. People felt embarrassed. And really just even using the facilities there, it felt awkward. So I can't imagine what that would be like if that was your every day. Um, do you think you would have been as successful? And not, I'm not talking about as a position on a job, but do you think you would have been as successful as a as a person? Uh, happiness, uh, you know, uh, whether personal, professional. It's hard to say everything is because of high school or schooling. But do you think it it helped you? prepare for adulthood, that that particular school? I do. I think one of the main things that was really beneficial to me in my life is Ideal had a weekly meeting where we made decisions cooperatively, whether that was like how we were going to promote a play or, you know, what was being served in the cafeteria. We all decided together. And I think that really taught leadership um, and advocating for yourself in a way that just isn't present for some students in large schools because maybe they participate in student government. But at Ideal, everyone is part of that decision-making process, and I think that's had huge ramifications in my life. Yeah, I mean, I'm just talking to Jen Yugama there. I have a sense that there's a lot of fight left in those parents, and it's going to be very interesting this week or next week as well on this issue. I think they will be revisiting it because I don't think they expected that kind of pushback, that's for sure. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you, Jazz. What's in a name? 
It's just a name, sweetie. It's not just a name. Why are names so important to some people? Excuse me. What's my name? You're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the show. In late January uh, this year, the Vancouver School Board approved changing the name of uh, Lord Roberts Elementary. That's a school in the city's West End, which was originally built in 1901. Now, under the board's um, new policy, which allows schools to change their name if the community requests it. Now, Lord Roberts was a British general during the Boer War, in which at that time you saw the British Empire defeat uh, independent republics in uh, in Southern Africa, which was uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, his military leadership um, was celebrated uh, amongst the British, but there's been a lot of focus uh, in recent years on the use of concentration camps in South Africa. Now, opponents uh, have argued that Lord Roberts participated in establishing concentration camps, but our next guest says the historical record does not necessarily support uh, this claim. Sam Sullivan of course, is a former mayor of Vancouver. He's also a former um, uh, MLA as well and a former minister of community sport and cultural development in British Columbia. He's been involved with the uh, organization called Global Civic, uh, which uh, he spends a lot of time focusing on civic issues uh, on YouTube with videos that they create. And he created one recently in regards to the conversation around Lord Roberts. Take a listen to just a small portion uh, of that video that was posted on YouTube just a few days ago. Take a listen. I am sure people could find something Lord Roberts did that offends our current sensibilities. He was born almost 200 years ago. Do they realize the comfortable, privileged life they live is because of people like Lord Roberts and our veterans? Is the Vancouver School Board practicing presentism, judging people from the past with the values of the present? It was a very different world back then. Life expectancy was 47 years. Today it's 82. 30% of children died before finishing elementary school. Today, less than 1% die. It is easy for people in our safe, affluent world to feel superior to people living in the past who lived such unbelievably hard lives. That was uh, Sam Sullivan in the YouTube video. I highly recommend you check it out. It's a longer um, um, conversation. comment that he makes on the issue of renaming the schools and you can find that on youtube under global civic highly recommend you check it out make up your mind in regards to his argument he joins us now to talk a little bit about changing names sam thank you for joining us thanks for having me um what convinced you to put this video together because there's many civic issues that you can be involved in you have lots of experience as a former mayor and a member of the legislative assembly why did this issue attract so much of your attention well, this isn't really what we do. We, we're we really focused on uh, urban development, trying to get control of the uh, price of housing. We're trying to solve the downtown east side. We've got a lot of things going on. But I've been watching just out of the corner of my eye as the Vancouver School Board has really gone into this aggressive name-changing program. They've, I've heard more, more, than a, more than 20 schools that have been proposed and uh, when the Lord Roberts came up, I said, hold on a sec. I, I was the uh, honorary major of the B.C. Regiment, and Lord Roberts was the first general ever to lead Vancouver soldiers in a war. And they went to fight slavery. And uh, I thought, they're missing the whole point. That the reasons they gave were really what you would find in a Wikipedia Google search. 
and they had no idea that it was Vancouver School Board teachers who were fighting. Uh, there were people, uh, you know, so many young people went and died on the battlefield in South Africa. Mahatma Gandhi organized a bunch of a couple hundred or several hundred uh, medical workers and gave lots of tributes to Lord Roberts. Uh, a lot of the local uh, African people joined in and tried to help him against the, the Boers who were pro-slavery. Mm-hmm. And I thought they just missed the whole story, so I, I really needed to set the record straight by simply doing this simple video. I just put it out there. I haven't really promoted it at all, but uh, then you saw it, so <laughs> thank you very much. Well, um, you're not against changing some of these names, uh, but you're specifically concerned about Lord Roberts and the the way the his history has been presented. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are definitely cases where you'd want to change a name, but Generally, well, I looked at some of the previous schools, they, they changed the name. And, you know, I, I got to say, I have some problems with those. They, they changed the McDonald School, they changed Begbie, they changed Crosstown. And, and what they unfortunately did was they didn't realize that these schools were in Squamish territory, according to the uh, court decision of 2001, but they gave them Musqueam names. So I thought, you know, how, how did they miss that, you know? This is a, this is a huge faux pas, and it you know got a sharp response, uh, you know, uh, for that. And I thought we really need a better renaming process. So we really want to help the school board to not make so many errors, and and to respect that there are some really important historical reasons. You know, here we have all these Vancouver soldiers who are in their graves in South Africa, and they were led by Lord Roberts, and they named the school after our veterans. So how did they miss that? I don't know. So I want to make sure that they get historians involved and they get real information. They don't just ask an activist to do a Google search, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want. And do you think renaming schools um, helps reconciliation? Well, that's so interesting because the reconciliation process itself rejected naming, changing names. Uh, the chair of the commission said, no, we, we looked at that. There was this, this very hardcore radical group of people. They, they, they operate under the title of decolonization, which is, is a Marxist term. And they said, we rejected the kinds of divisive things they wanted. And so... The, the Reconciliation Commission has rejected changing names. They said if you want to really do things, you add a name. You know, you, you take the school name and you maybe add a name to it. So uh, they claim that they're helping reconciliation. Well, the reconciliation people themselves say, no, you're actually harming it. So uh, apparently they didn't know that either. So we need to get more information. You know, this is a school board. They're supposed to be able to do research you know they have information and education they should really lead by example that they're going to do the right thing and do the research get the information and then do what they think they need to do do you think that but there's a lot of schools named after lords uh and i'm just using that as a specific example should we should the focus not be on focusing on perhaps uh geography 
uh, a local name or local heroes. I mean, not every community is going to create a Terry Fox that we all collectively agree mm-hmm. should have a school named after him or, or Rick Hansen. But, you know, they're few and far between. They do wonderful work and have done great work for the, for the people of British Columbia and Canada. Um, but in regards to, you know, and I, and I don't want to use this in inelegant term. Others have. Maybe I will use it. It's is this in your mind sort of a war against dead white males and needing to replace them and calling that reconciliation? You just think that's the wrong way to go? Well, there's certainly a bit of that going on, you know, but I'm I'm worried about uh, my my elementary school. My elementary school was named after a slave owner. And, uh, you know, he killed some of his slaves. And uh, But I hope we don't change that name. Now, the name of my school is Chief McQuinnah, and who really wasn't uh, involved in this area either. But he, uh, you know, I think we need to keep that name because, you know, we never, when we when we think about Chief McQuinnah, we think of a neighborhood, we think of all the, the students that went before us, you know, like uh, I give the example in my, my video about Rome is named after Romulus and Romulus killed Remus. It was a murder. It was a very horrible thing. Uh, but I'm not saying we need to change the name of Rome. You know, nobody thinks of Romulus killing Remus. Mm-hmm. We think of Rome, it has its own name, and it, be, it takes its own own meaning. I don't think there's any students of Lord Robert's school that think about, you know, the battlefield in South Africa. I think they think of it as a, a name of their neighborhood, a, a name of, you know, it, it develops really close emotional attachments and people say hey i'm 85 years old and i went to lord roberts and you're at lord roberts well we have something in common you know mm-hmm. and uh, i've heard of people hiring people because you know that was from their school and they felt uh, you know they wanted to honor that and so there's way more beyond some guy in in south africa and, and our dead soldiers it's way it goes way beyond that and i think we have to bring in the neighborhood we have to bring in the alumni uh, right now, it's a very much an insider process where, you know, a group of parents who, you know, have some, some of them are motivated by this. Let's just, uh, you know, uh, well, who knows what they're motivated by, but uh, I think we need to make sure we do this right. My guest is Sam Sullivan, former mayor of Vancouver and MLA. We're talking about renaming schools and what the process is. Give me a call on the open line. I want to hear from you, 604-280-9898. That's 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell phone. More with Sam Sullivan after the break. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, uh, we are speaking to former Vancouver Mayor Sam Sullivan. He's also former MLA as well. He recently posted a video on YouTube uh, on behalf of the group Global Civic, which he has been involved involved with for a very long time, talking about what is the process to change the name of a school. And he uh, provides uh, lots of background on Lord Roberts. Of course, uh, of course, Lord Roberts Elementary in the West End is um, built, uh, named after Lord Roberts. And it was originally built in 1901. And he talked about some of the more complex history of Lord Roberts rather than the black and white view that others uh, have um, articulated uh, in the past. I want to get your thoughts in regards to changing names uh, and uh, Sam, you also brought up the issue of presentism. I'm going to get to that in a moment, but let's get to our calls. Uh, let's go to Sean in the West End. Hi, Sean. Hey, Jazz, and hey, Sam. Um, yeah, I heard uh, the radio and decided to call in. I have graduated from Lord Roberts 
it's an elementary school. That was grade seven. I got my scholarship back from there. But you know what? My background is uh, we came to Canada in the very early 1990s uh, from Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I spoke no English. And I'll tell you this. We weren't taught about the history of Lord Roberts. Well, we, we knew he was an important person in the school. But for me, what made the difference was going through ESL and learning the values of Canadians and how to be a good citizen of Canada. That formed me at Lord Roberts. The name is important, but the teachers that were teaching us were also important. And uh, I would hate for the name to go away. Mm-hmm. So it, made, it made me who I am. It made me a good citizen of Canada. I'm happy to be here. Sean, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Let's go to Don in Vancouver. Hi, Don. Yes, hi. Um, I wanted to add to what Sam Sullivan said. I think he's right. And I think that uh, he mentioned Begbie. And uh, I, I have felt from the very start that the uh, uh, Begbie name should have remained. And they could have added an Indigenous name, which would be, would be great. But uh, the vilification of Begbie at the hands of uh, our present Prime Minister and his uh, activist friends, completely terrible. Um, I've studied this. I've researched it. Uh, Begbie, uh, Begbie uh, Matthew Bailey Begbie, was a, was one, is one of the reasons why we're Canadian and British Columbia is part of Canada. Uh, he made a huge contribution to uh, the success of B.C. remaining Canadian instead of being absorbed by America with all the consequences that would have flowed from that. So uh, it's terrible what's happened, what, what's happened to the narrative about our history at the hands of certain elites and people who think that their blankety-blank doesn't stink. Don, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Sam, um when I look at the numbers here in regards to Vancouver schools, um, you know, you've got uh, 20 of them named after residents of uh, British Columbia, uh, 15 they referred to as other people, 14 are named after neighborhoods, eight of them based on geography, eight in regards to indigenous people or terms, 29 are named after British people or symbols. And there's no doubt there's been a tremendous uh, amount of contribution those of, um, of the British nationality have made. Um, but times change as well. And, you know, with that, there has been colonialism uh, in the last 200 years that we collectively as Canadians have dealt with, indigenous communities specifically. Other nations around the world have dealt with this issue as well. In my time in India, uh, you know, Mumbai or Bombay is now Mumbai and many other cities in in, in India have changed their names more specific to the local dialect. Uh, What is wrong with doing that here? I'm not saying we erase every name that is of British heritage, but reflective of Canada and British Columbia of today. Yeah, that's why it's so odd that they went after Begbie. Higby is one of the good guys. He learned indigenous languages. Mm-hmm. He was able to, uh, you know, when, when juries uh, made, uh, you know, made some of them, uh, declared some of them guilty. He, 11 Native people, he appealed to the governor and got their sentences commuted. Um, he, he was called, in, in a negative way at the time, the best friend of the Chinese. And he went to bat, and he he, he threw out uh, the anti-potlatch law, uh, and and they could never raise the head tax as long as he was there. They waited till he was dead, and uh, they went after him. And you know, the guy who came to the defense of Judge Begbie was none other uh, than than uh, you know the the great lawyer and judge, you know, who has 
who has, uh, def, you know, did more for Aboriginal people and rights and title than anywhere, Berger, Tom Berger. Mm-hmm. He was the one who moved the motion to the Law Society to overturn their decision to get rid of his statue. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom Berger, he was the one that changed the world for Aboriginal people by going to the Supreme Court and advocating for them. He's the guy that says he was his hero. You know, so there are names that could be changed. Why would they go after Lord Roberts, who was had such an iconic role in, in the very first... This is the first war that Canadian soldiers fought in Canadian units in Canadian uniforms. Sam, I'm going to have to cut you off right there. We've run out of time. I promise to have you on again on this issue. I think there's lots of opinions and thoughts on that. Thank you once again for your time today. Appreciate it. Last month, Ethical Capital Partners acquired MindGeek. Now, Ethical Capital Partners is a newly formed Canadian private equity firm, and MindGeek is the owner of Pornhub, which is, of course, an adult content site. Uh, MindGeek has a controversial history. It's been accused of hosting um, underage sexual content uh, to the the point that MasterCard and Visa uh, shut off payment services to the company's uh, subscription uh, system uh, a while back. Now, sites like Pornhub uh, are some of the most trafficked sites globally. They're right up there in regards to attracting uh, users uh, like Google, Facebook, and New York Times. So it's very much tra- heavily trafficked. Now, porn is everywhere. I want to put that in context for you. In 1991, when the internet went online, there were fewer than 90 different adult magazines published in North America. And uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, f- uh, a few behind a new Six years later, in 1997, there were 900 pornography sites on the web, and today, uh, filtering software like CyberSitter blocks two and a half million adult websites uh, every single day. And the current generation of teens isn't the first to check out pornography, but it is having a huge impact on their lives and also impacting sex education uh, teachers and also having an impact on relationships, adult relationships uh, as well. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Alexander Kirschbaum, who is the owner and lawyer at Kirschbaum and Company. And recently, Alexandra wrote uh, an op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen. I highly recommend you check it out. Alexandra, thank you for joining us. No problem. It's great to be here. Um, what uh, convinced you to write this op-ed, and why do you think it's so important to talk about this particular purchase, but the broader issue of pornography in our society? So uh, there was a lot in the news when Ethical Capital Partners purchased uh, MindGeek, and there was a lot of conversation about it as if this was somehow you know, a big event or a salacious event that respectable criminal defense lawyers would go on to purchase this company. And it, it occurred to me as I was reading that coverage, that the conversation we should be having is really about the incredible transformation that's happened to our society in the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, go ahead. You know, uh, and you raise a very good point here. Um, how do we deal with this proliferation? As I said, you know, you had 90 magazines published uh, a year uh, or uh, um, regularly publishing when the World Wide Web uh, first went online in 1991. And today you have, uh, you know, filtering software that blocks two and a half million adult websites uh, globally. How do we deal with something like this in regards to, uh, you know, the individual? How do we deal with this particular situation? So I think the first step is to become aware that there's been a huge social change. And then once we become aware that there's that change, we need to start to reflect on it. So we have to ask questions. 
Um, you know, we need to kind of wonder who is watching pornography. Why are they watching pornography? What is the impact that that's having on their lives, on their relationships? Um, do we have data about it? So as I was um, preparing for uh, this radio interview, I looked up whether Statistics Canada had any statistics on pornography use, and they don't, mm-hmm. right? So so pornography is a, it's something that is, uh, as I said in my article, really all around us, and it's something that is watched by a very large percentage of the population. I mean, if you're on the on public transit in the morning, chances are one of the two people that you're sitting beside has watched pornography in the last 24 hours, right? So... So it's important for us, I think, to start to ask these questions and also to think about our youth um, who are having um, a different kind of experience of sexual education as a result of the proliferation of pornography. So there was a Canadian study that was done that said that um, a quarter of youth are first exposed to pornography at the age of 10. Uh, So that's very young, right, to have Mm -hmm. access to that kind of material, and that would be a really huge departure from from what had happened historically. Uh, do you think there needs to be just stronger regulations? It's all well and good for Visa and Math- MasterCard uh, to uh, say, uh, you know, customers can't use um, their credit cards for uh, watching Pornhub, but that took a tremendous amount of pressure uh, on the part of many consumers to get Visa and MasterCard to that point. Today, you look at social media, incredible impact those social media channels, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Snapchat, uh, Twitter, that are having an impact on our kids' mental health, the anxiety challenges that are there. Do you think government needs to step in and be some sort of regulations and some accountability from these organizations? So, I mean, I'm not an expert in pornography. Um, My expertise is in relationship breakdown, and so I see a lot of the impacts of pornography on relationship breakdown. Mm-hmm. I do think that we need to reflect on the change in the way that pornography is, is created and delivered to the consumer. So as you said in your introduction, we used to have uh, 90 magazines that were published on a regular basis, and then we there was a proliferation of porn sites, and now there's, um, you know, people are, are doing something they didn't do before, which is that they're creating pornography in their homes, and they're uploading it to the internet for anyone to see. So it's difficult in that context to control, for example, whether everybody who's being filmed in that homemade video is consenting. And so there should be um, regulation in respect of making sure that each person who's depicted in a pornographic video online has, in fact, consented, is of age, and understands the implications. Because, you know, in, a, in an ordinary sexual relationship, one can consent to sex, for example, on the 18th of April, and then three weeks from now not consent to sex again. But once you're once you're up there on the internet in a pornographic video, it's really hard to withdraw that consent in a meaningful way because the information is available to the public. So, I mean, I absolutely think that the internet has, has changed the way that pornographic content is available in society and in an unforeseeable and incredible way. And, and governments do have to be responsive to that. And part of that responsiveness is also in increasing and encouraging a public conversation about pornography. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised that there hasn't been this discourse in regards to our elected officials? Like, no one seems to be talking about this. But as you say, it is everywhere, and it's having a huge impact on not just adult relationships, but as you said, on our children as well. Like, there's very little, conver- very little to no conversation about this. Well, it's a divisive issue, and it's a, it's a difficult issue for politicians because... There is a spectrum of viewpoints, and on one side of the spectrum is a a very uh, staunchly anti-porn viewpoint, and on the other side is a kind of laissez-faire, almost-anything-goes viewpoint. And it's really difficult for politicians, I think, to evaluate their constituents in terms of their viewpoint on pornography. So it doesn't surprise me that politicians are not 
um, sort of jumping at the chance to deal with pornography in their platforms because it's hard for them to know uh, what people's views are. It's also a very uh, taboo and sensitive topic. That's why people who are married have difficulty talking to each other about their porn consumption habits. And, and you know, it's also um, something I think we're... we're only coming to grips with as a society right now. I mean, 50 or 60 years ago, censorship laws were very different than they are today. And uh, this is sort of the first time people who are millennials or coming of age are are moving into their 30s and uh, their late 30s or mid 30s or or early 30s, probably. I think that's a fair description of that generation, are now coming into positions of power, into positions of influence. And we are really the first generation to have grown up with access to this. And Ms. Kirschbaum, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Well, our next guest uh, joined uh, his BC counterparts today to announce that they're going to be planting a lot more trees in our province over the next few years, uh, just before, of course, the tree planting season here in British Columbia. Joining me now is Jonathan Wilkinson, our country's Minister of Natural Resources. Minister, thank you for joining us. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so walk me through today's announcement. I think it's an agreement to plant more than 37 million more trees. Yeah, it is. Um, and, uh, and it's an $80 million agreement in total. So $40 million from the federal government and $40 million from the government of B.C. It's part of the federal government's 2 billion trees program, which is part of our climate program, but also part of uh, arresting biodiversity loss in this country. And, uh, and it's one of, uh, one of a number of agreements that we expect we will sign with British Columbia over the course of the 10-year period of this program. Um, why has, is, is it taking this long? I know um, the federal government announced, I think it was the 2019 election, that they're uh, committed to planting 2 billion trees this decade. Uh, we're far short of that at this particular point. Why is it taking so long to get this program rolling? Well, yeah, the first planting season was just last year. Um, and, uh, and of course, standing a program like this up uh, requires putting in place a whole bunch of things. But most particularly, it requires uh, contracting with nurseries to be able to actually grow the seedlings, which often take two to three years before they're actually ready to be planted. So last year was the first year we were in the field planting. There were about 30 million trees that were planted last year. Um, as we actually have, uh, are expanding the, uh, the production capacity at the nurseries and working with the provinces to do that, we will see those numbers go up very significantly over the course of the next number of years. And we're, we're, uh, we feel we're quite on track to, to meet the $2 billion tree commitment, which, which will help us to actually reduce carbon emissions. And as I say, it will help us to save species like boreal caribou. Um, in, in regards to the broader issue of climate change, GHG, GHG emissions, um, you know, there are many other nations uh, have talked about planting more trees. I think there's three trillion trees globally. How much of an impact can we have just based on planting more trees? Well, it's significant. Um, you know, nature-based solutions where you actually use the power of nature to help you reduce carbon emissions is an important part of the climate plan. Obviously, you need to reduce emissions from industrial sources and cars and everything else. But there are, there are a couple of different programs within the federal government. One is the trees program, another is restoring wetlands and, and those kinds of things, which also sequester carbon. 
And for the nature-based solution programs within um, Canada's climate plan, it's about 30 megatons by 2050, which is a big chunk of Canada's emissions. Mm -hmm. Um, In regards to uh, this particular program, uh, as you say, 2 billion trees, that's about 200 million a year, and you've started planting, it's only been a year. That still comes out to about half a million trees a day. The seasons are, of course, limited as well. Um, You know, in regards to you know, feeling confident that you actually uh, address this issue? And how confident do you feel that you can actually get to that point where you're going to be planting 200 million trees a year? Well, I think we're pretty comfortable. Um, you know, we're, we've signed or in the process of signing agreements to plant uh, almost 300 million trees already. Um, there are a number of different streams of this program. So we do some of the work with Indigenous partners, some with municipalities, and some with private sector organizations, including farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bulk of the trees will be planted through the provinces and territories who already have um, tree programs in place. British Columbia obviously has a huge program in place. Um, and, uh, and so based on the work we've done today and based on what we see going forward, we actually are quite comfortable we will be able to meet the numbers. Uh, how comfortable, uh, in regards to the broader conversation around dealing with climate change, I know you're, you've been incredibly immersed in this in your time as, as, as minister. Where would you put Canada overall in regards to what we're trying to do here? You take into consideration EVs, uh, electric vehicle chargers. You talk about um, a, a variety of programs from transit uh, to how we consume energy, what we use, all of those types of things. How do you think we're faring overall, though, in the G7 world in regards to our contribution when it comes to dealing with the issues of climate change? Well, it's a great question. I actually just got back two days ago from a G7 meeting in uh, in Japan. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, Canada, uh, you know, unfortunately started late. We had 10 years of, of Stephen Harper, who, uh, who played very little attention to the climate issue. And so we were starting from a place that was behind many, many of our partners like Germany and France. Um, but but uh, we have put into place what I would say is perhaps the most comprehensive climate plan that exists anywhere on this planet. We're making progress. Uh, we're, we've reduced emissions versus the baseline now by about 9%. The target is 40 by 2030, but a lot of the measures are just in the process of getting rolled out. Um, you know, and a lot of the measures are things that you would uh, you would know about. I mean, you know, that, that we are going to be getting rid of internal combustion engines and replacing them with non-emitting vehicles. Um, we're seeing progress, significant progress here in BC. Um, but we're looking at every sector of the economy, and that's what you have to do in order to make the progress. So, at this stage, I think we're we're comfortable. We'll be able to meet the targets, the science line targets that we put into place. But there's a lot of heavy lifting to do, and it's going to be across every sector of the economy. Minister, thank you for your time today. Not at all. Thank you for having me. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.